Alright, so we got Unit 2. We're going to redo this. Unit 2. What elements are required to make a contract valid by le uh, valid and legal in Lee? I'm going to do it again. Number one, what, con what elements are required to make a contract valid and legally enforceable? Let's grab my glasses here. Hang on a second. Oh, much better. Answer. The parties to the contract must have legal capacity to make a contract. The object of the contract must be lawful and the contract itself must not be illegal. There must be consideration for the promises made by each party. The parties to the contract must be in an agreement. The parties must intend to effect their legal relations enter into a contract the term of the contract must be defined and clear definite and clear number two what ways was a contract what ways was a contract oh that's probably just where i left off number two in what ways was a contract Oh, sorry. In what ways can a contract be terminated? That was very confusing there. The ways of termination of a contract are mutual agreement, performance, frustration, operation of law, and breach. Mutual agreement, performance, frustration, operation of law, and breach. So M P F O B. There's no acronym for that. MAP, so MAP, F-O-L-B. I don't know if that's a good acronym. All right, number three, what fiduciary duties does an agent owe to the principal? There are general duties that at common law... Sorry, there are general duties at common law and specific legislative obligations, such as in the Real Estate Act. In addition to these, an agent also owes fiduciary duties to the principal in which Oh, I say which include the following, which I didn't write down. I get that. Well, I'm just gonna delete that. Uh, number four, what duties does the property manager owe to the customer be honest and legal duty to take care of answering inquiries or giving information to a third party so that the information is complete and accurate number five what can a property manager negotiate to a contract on behalf of the owner answer specifically written authority is usually contained in the property management agreement grants the property manager legal ability whereas the owner is legally bound to any decisions made number six i think it, this is a big one number six describe how a relationship between a principal and an agent may be terminated the answer mutual consent 
the principal and the agent agree to terminate the agency relationship. Revocation. The principal may revoke the authority of the brokerage, lawfully or unlawfully, but may be liable for damages if the agency is unlawfully revoked. Expiry, the agency relationship ends on a date previously agreed by both parties unless the agreement is renewed. Completion and performance. The goal of the agreement has been attained. Operation of law frustration. The subject of the agreement ceases to exist. The property's destruction, like in a fire. Death. Mental incapacity or bankruptcy. Any of these occur to the agent or principal. Legality. The purpose of the agreement is unlawful. And those are the answers for describing how a relationship between a principal and an agent can be terminated. Number seven. Describe what is meant by tort law. Tort law, it broadly relates to the acts or activities, either intentionally or unintentionally, by a person or persons. It may cause injury, property damage, or damage to a reputation. Number eight, what areas of tort law apply to property managers? Answer, trespass. By wrongfully enter, by wrongfully remaining, by wrongfully placing. Nuances. Public, private nuances. 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 Including wrongful disturbance of an easement or certitude to the land. Wrongfully allowing the escape of injurious things. Onto another person's land, including water, smoke, noxious fumes, chemicals, other materials, or animals. Liability for negligence, which includes in injuries to a person or persons, or damage to the property on the managed premises. It's, it is an area of high vulnerability for property managers. Number nine. Answer is two part. Answer A. Nope. Question first. What is the difference between public nu nuisance? Oh, that's the word. What is the difference between a public nuisance and a private nuisance? Answer A. A public nuisance arises from an act that endangers life, health, property, morals, or comfort of the public, or obstructs the public in exercise or enjoyment of the rights common to all. The public nuisance is an actionable in tort and can also be a criminal offense. Number B, a private nuisance, nuisance usually is caused by a person doing something on his own land, which he is lawfully entitled to do, but which becomes a nuisance when the consequence of the act extended to the land 
and its neighborhood by, for example, causing physical damage, a private nuisance is an actionable tort. Number 10. Describe the categories recognized by common law with respect to occupier's liability. Invitee is a person permitted to occupy, sorry, invitee is a person permitted by the occupier to enter as a matter of business and the occupier obtains some material benefit or the probability of a benefit from invitee's presence, i.e. retail store or customer. Licensee is a person who comes onto the premises with the express implied permission of the occupier for a purpose in which the occupier has no economic interest. Pedestrians using washrooms at gas station or guests coming to diner or dinner. I guess that would be dinner. Trespasser is someone who enters upon a premises unlawfully. He or she enters without any invitation or the premises to do so from the occupier. Number 11. Describe what is meant by vicarious liability. Answer, a property manager is liable for the negligence or other wrongful acts of a person employed by him or her when those acts are committed in, an, in the ordinary course of employment with the property manager. This is a common law doctrine of various liability. The personal liability is common Insurance of a property manager to help with these situations. Number 12, what is the property manager? Hmm. What is, what property management activities are considered a trade in real estate? Answer, industry member must be authorized to trade in real estate in Alberta. In terms of property manager, this means the activities such as leasing, negotiating, approving, or offering a lease or rental, holding money in connection with these activities, collecting, offering, or attempting to collect rents on behalf of another or advertisement. Question 13, how does an individual become authorized to provide property management service? The answer, after completing all courses, and is employed with a registered broker, license plus registration certificate equals authorization. 14. According to the Real Estate Act, what are the property management's requirements respect to advertising? Answer to be registered with a broker and follow the rules. 15, what circumstances, in what circumstances may property managers offer an inducement? Answer, brokerages under the Act are the only bodies capable of offering an inducement unless they are 
in writing and approved by the brokerage. 16. What are the Real Estate Act requirements with respect to paying of commission? Answer must be registered and licensed by RECA to accept commission payments. 17. Describe the different types of residential tenancies. Answer. Periodic tenancies and related to the notice period obligations of the landlord tenants, remedies of the landlord and tenants, security deposits, provincial court, residential tenancies, dispute service. Number 18. According to the Voluntary Code of Practice, what elements should be included in a tenancy agreement? A copy must be given to a tenant within 21 days after signing. Tenant can withhold the rent until a copy is received. Must be in writing. The name of the business and the address of the landlord and the name uh, and the address of the tenant. The mailing address or the unit number or designated designation of the premises. The amount and payment conditions of the rent. The rental term. The amount of terms for all money paid to be paid by the tenant, including, but not limited to rent, prepaid rent, conditionally refunded deposits, or other fees and or charges. Date of the agreement, names and addresses of all parties, addresses or description of the location of the property, term, of the tenancy rent amount where where when and how it is to be paid whether utilities furniture appliances parking and etc are included and what sorry and at whose cost names of the people permitted to live within the premise security deposit amount Authorized deductions and in, and interest, care and maintenance and repair responsibilities, insurance requirements, rules for any additional fees, pets, guests, NFS charges, and signatures of all parties. That was a big answer. <laughs> that was the answer to 18, which is according to the voluntary code of practice, what elements should be included in a tenancy agreement? Quite a lot, it would seem. So, number 19. Question. According to the Residential Tenancies Act, what are the landlord's obligations to the tenant? Answer. Make the premises available on the move-in date. Ensure the tenant has a peaceful enjoyment of the premise. The landlord must not disturb or bother the tenant beyond what is necessary to do the landlord's business. Ensure the premise meets the minimum standard of public health act and regulations. Complete inspection reports within one week before or after a tenant takes slash gives up possession and providing copies to the tenant. Provide a notice of the landlord and to the landlord within seven days of taking possession with the landlord's or property manager's name and postal address and physical location for the projects. With common areas, notice can be given to each tenant or displayed where all tenants can see. 20. 
According to the Residential Tenancies Act, what are the tenant's obligations to the landlord? The answer, paying the rent on time, be considerate of the landlord's right, other rights of the tenants, the rights of any common area. Not engaging in an acts of endangerment of other tenants the, or the premise or the common area. Not engaging in illegal acts or illegal business activities in the premise or common area. Keeping the premise reasonably clean. Do not, not doing or permitting damage to the premise or common area. Moving out at the end of the tenancy. 21. What must a property manager be aware of when requesting a security deposit from a prospective tenant? The answer. To be held by or for the landlord as a security for the premise performance of an obligation or the payment of a liability by the tenant or to be returned to the tenant on happening of condition a security deposit may not exceed a full month's rent as prescribed by section 43 a security deposit must be requested at the start of the tenancy security deposits is agreed to at the start and the landlord asks for one later this would be considered an increase of security deposit which is not allowed by the Residential Tenancies Act. Security deposit must be in an interest-bearing account. The only security deposit monies may be deposited into the security pound of a trust account. This must be deposited within two banking days after the tenant makes the payment to the landlord. Tenants are entitled to interest on security deposits be paid annually according to the section 45. The landlord shall return security deposits within the interest within 10 days of termination of the tenancy unless the landlord or tenant agrees to the other conditions. Applying the deposit to any rent owing, cleaning costs or property repairs. Landlord must maintain security deposit records for each tenant and must retain records for at least three years after the expiration or termination of the tenancy. Number 22. According to the Residential Tenancies Act, Tenancies Act, what are the requirements with respect to inspection reports? Sorry for the interruption. That was a phone call from an anonymous caller. And I'm not editing this, so... <laughs> you got the full version. The raw, unedited, authentic version of recording myself. Okay, question 22. According to the Residential Tenancies Act, what are the requirements with respect to inspection reports? Answer. Requires landlord to complete a move-in and move-out inspection report within one week of the tenancy starting or ending. A copy must be provided as soon as it is completed. Records must be kept for three years. If a move-in inspection report is not done, a landlord will be unable to keep any security deposit for any damages on the premises. Question 23. 
Number 23. In what circumstances may a landlord enter a tenant's premise? The answer, without consent, but with a notice of a landlord may enter. The time of entry must be re reasonable within... Funny. The time must... <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Words. Hard. So much reading. Question number 23. In what circumstances may a landlord enter a tenant's premise? Answer. Without consent, but with notice, a landlord may enter. The time of entry must be reasonable between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., but not on a holiday, Sunday, or other day of worship of the tenant. At 24 hours for inspection, the state of repairs of the premise to make repairs to the premises for pest control to show the premise to prospective purchasers or mortgages to show the premise to prospective tenants is the answer in what circumstances may a landlord enter a tenant premises Right, as I was rudely interrupted, looks like I was on question number 24. So, 24, what are the requirements for a property manager to increase tenants' rent? There's a three-part answer here. A, for a week-to-week -week tenancy, the landlord must give the tenant at least 12 weeks' notice. B, for a month-to-month -month tenancy, at least three tenancy months notice is required. For number three, for any other period of tenancy, at least 90 days before the date on which the increase is to be effective. Number 25, in what circumstances may a landlord terminate the tenancy? Termination of a tenancy, a landlord or a relative of the landlord intends to live in the premises. The property has been sold and the purchaser, 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 why can't I say that word? Purchaser, purchaser, purchaser. Language is hard. Okay, answer a landlord or a relative of the landlord intends to live on the premise this is the premise that is currently being occupied the property has been sold and the purchaser or a purchaser's relative intends to live on the premise the landlord has sold a detached or semi-detached dwelling unit or condo unit and the purchaser has required in writing that the tenancy be terminated. The landlord wants to use the resident premises for a non-residential purpose. The landlord is an educational institution and the tenant is or willing or will no longer be a student at the termination date specified 
in the notice of termination. The landlord intends to demolish the building. The landlord intends to major renovations. These are all reasons why or how a landlord can terminate the tenancy. Now what's interesting I notice is that in my own vocabulary, landlord, the word landlord, its original derivative is from when the kings and queens era of humanity had lords of the land, which were essentially landlords. So they were guys, and mostly just guys back then I would assume, that owned the land and then they would rent out their land to the peasants or, or whatever and people pay taxes. So today's standard in Alberta, the landlord still refers to lords of the land. Whereas I think in America it's different because of all of the American TV productions I've seen. The landlord, it seems to be just a guy who has been hired to kind of manage the building itself, not necessarily the property manager, but more of a property assistant, essentially. So when I say landlord in reference to this, it's talking about the person that owns the property and the property manager has been hired by the landlord to maintain the property. So essentially in the States, I think it's landlord. And in Canada, especially in Alberta, it's property manager uh, is effectively the similar thing, as far as I understand it. Because, oh, why not? So how many more of these do we have? Oh, wow. Unit 2 goes all the way to f question 49. we got a lot of talking to do. Okay, number 26, according to the Residential Tenancies Act. What? Oop, there goes my voice. What are the notice periods for termination? Oh, that doesn't make any sense. I just, I thought I did this one. According to the Residential Tenancies Act, what are the notice periods for terminating a periodic residency, tenancy? Three answers. Answer, weekly periodic tenancy. The landlord must provide one week notice. Notice must be given on or before the first day of the tenancy week with termination to be effective on the last day of the tenancy week. The tenant must provide one week's written notice. It must be given on or before the first day of the tenancy week with termination to be effective on the last day of the tenancy week. B. Monthly periodic tenancy. The monthly periodic tenancy. You hear this dog yelping in the background. My neighbors have these dogs that howl. Both of them howl. They don't bark, they just howl. It's crazy. <sighs> okay, B. Periodic, monthly periodic tenancy. The landlord must give tenant three months notice notice must be given before the first day or three months notice period the tenant must give the landlord one tenancy month notice notice must be given on or before the first day of the one month period see yearly periodic tenancy the landlord must give 90 days 
written notice for termination to be effective on the last day of the tenancy year, the tenant must give landlord 60-day notice for the termination to be effective on the last day of the year of the tenancy. Number 27, what circumstances can a landlord serve notice to vacate? Answer, 48-hour notice. If the tenant has abandoned the premises before the end of the tenancy, the landlord can give 48-hour notice to vacate. The tenant does not give proper notice at the end of the periodic tenancy. The tenant moves out before the end of the fixed-term tenancy. Second answer, 14-day notice. To an unauthorized person living in the residency premise occupied by the tenant. If the tenant does not leave within 14 days, a court order for the non-tenant can be given. Number 28. Number 28, number 28. What is the difference between an assignment and sublease? An assignment, assignment. The original tenancy is not returning to the premise. The original tenant assigns all obligations and rights of the original contract to the new tenant and the new tenant becomes responsible for the tenancy agreement. B, sublease. Sublease, the original tenant intends to return to the premises and resume the tenancy agreement. Original tenant is liable for of the other persons to fulfill the obligation on original contact. Number 29. What are the landlord-tenant obligations in respecting the assignment? Answer, the tenant must obtain the landlord's written permission to sublet or assign the premise to another party. The landlord may not refuse permission without reasonable grounds, and if the landlord decides not to allow the assignment or sublease, the landlord must provide written reason within 14 days of receiving the request. If the landlord does not respond with in writing within 14 days, the tenant may assume the landlord has consented. Question number 30. What should the property manager do? The tenant vacates the premise, says, and leaves personal belongings behind. Or personal property behind. If a landlord believes that the market value of the abandoned goods is less than prescribed amount as set in part, Five of the residential tenancies ministerial regulations currently $2,000. The landlord may dispose of the goods. Basically, if your shit's not worth 2000 bucks, you can get thrown out. Landlords may sell goods for reasonable prices if, if this isn't the case. And then the landlord must store the goods for a period prescribed with 30 days. After 30 days, goods may be sold to the public auction or with approval of the courts 
by private sale. So basically, if you leave your stuff in your apartment and you uh, vacate the premises and you don't come back for it and it's worth more than $2,000, whatever's in there, the landlord must hold the stuff for 30 days in case you do decide to come back. And if you still haven't come back within 30 days, they, the landlord may sell off your goods and I don't know what they would do with the money. Probably use it to help make the garden look better or something. Uh, but if your stuff is worth less than 2000 they have permission to throw it away. Which is common with people abandoning things. Okay. Number 31. 31, 31, 31. You can tell I really love this. Okay. <clears throat> what tasks might a condominium corporation delegate to the property manager? Answer, providing care, upkeep, operational maintenance, and security for the complex. Designating, hiring, dismissing personnel required to maintain, operate, and repair the condo's common areas. Providing common services to repair and maintain the common areas. Preparing and adopting an annual budget to determine the common expenses required for the property operate condo and administrative businesses establishing and collecting assessments to pay common expenses establishing reserve funds and future common expenses including repair or replacement of common areas and unforeseen contingencies keeping books with detailed accounts for the receipts and expenditures related to the property and administration of the condominium, preparing and issuing status and information disclosures when a unit is for sale, acquiring and maintaining adequate insurance, employing a property manager or contracts, and outlying the directing their duties. Hopefully that makes sense. Number 32. Oh, my music stopped. Music's back. Back again. Okay, number 32. According to the Condominium Property Act, what are the owner's responsibilities when he or she decides to rent their individual unit? Answer, the condo... Landlord should ensure that the tenant shall not cause damage to any common area. Obey the bylaws of the condo. The landlord should give the tenant a copy of the bylaws and the rules. At the time he or she takes possession, the landlord must notify the condo board in writing if the tenant to rent their unit. Oh, if the tenant intends to rent their unit. Uh, the notice must include the name of the tenant and be presented within 20 days after the tenancy commences. Within 20 days of ceasing to rent the owner's unit, the owner must give the corporation written notice that the owner's unit is no longer rented. The tenant must not cause damage to the property of the corporation or the common area and must not contravene the bylaws. 
corporation may ask the landlord for a deposit to repair any damage to the common area caused by the tenant. Number 33, the Alberta Human Rights Act protects individuals from discriminating on what, what grounds? On what grounds? The answer, place of origin, religious beliefs, gender, gender identity, gender expression, age, physical disability, mental disability, marital status, family status, source of income, and sexual orientation. Number 34. What? Oops. Number 34. Answer. An accommodation is a change made to certain rules, standards, policies, and physical environments to ensure they do not negatively affect a person under on grounds. The onus is on the owners to show that they may have reasonable accommodated prospective tenants or that no reasonable accommodation is possible under the circumstances. Generally, the expense of such accommodation rests with the property owner. In some circumstances, reasonable accommodation may include a person using a wheelchair by providing a building entrance ramp placing a flashlight instead of a doorbell what placing oh sorry placing a flashing light <laughs> flashlight flashing light instead of a doorbell in units to assist hearing impaired people transferring a family who has more children to a larger unit when it becomes available Number 35. According to the Alberta Human Rights Act, what information may a landlord request from a prospective tenant? The answer, amount of income they make, but not the source of their income. Which is weird when you think about it. Uh, 36, according to the Alberta Human Rights Act, what information must a landlord not request from a prospective tenant? Landlords may not request the source of income. Property managers should not ask about the source of pr prospective tenant's income as it may be considered discriminatory, even if it's criminal. Rent to income ratios, rent to income rations. Rations? Ratios? Rations. I think it's rations. Rent to income rations. A property manager should not refuse to rent a potential tenant who would have spent more money than a particular percentage of their income on rent. So my guess is that if if you're spending all of your paycheck on the rent and not much else for anything else, then they're saying they're saying a property manager should not refuse to rent 
to potential who oh so you, even if they're spending more money on the rent than they can probably afford we shouldn't refuse them cool 37 according to personal information's Pro protection act <sighs> According to the Personal Information's Protection Act, how should a property manager handle personal information? Answer, ensure personal information is accurate and correct information on request. Ensure that information is secure. Both print and electronic information files, cabinets should be kept locked and electric data should be encrypted, password protected, information kept only if reasonable for business and illegal reasons. Designate a person at the brokerage to ensure compliance with the PIPA, P-I-P-A, which is P-I-P-A, Personal Information Protections Act, in make the brokerage's privacy policies available on request. Hope I remember all this. Okay, 38. What is the purpose of the land use bylaw? What is the purpose of the land use bylaw? Regulates the use and development of the land and buildings within the regional municipality the purpose is to divide the municipality into land use districts number 39 I'm already tired of this narrating into a microphone where was I 39 oh, 39 Describe the different land use districts, residential, designated by an R, the letter R. So for example, letter R-1 for single detached dwelling. Commercial is a letter C, so C-1 to CC. Industrial and special districts, agriculture, open spaces, public parks, schools, and rec areas, and urban reserves. So they have different designations. So special districts are agricultural, open spaces, public park schools, rec areas, and urban reserves. Number 40. 40? We've made it to 40. Aren't we so happy? Hello, 40. Edward 40 hats. Hey. What is the difference between permitted use and discretionary use? Permitted use are identified as appropriate for the land use district as well as the compatible with other permitted uses and discretionary uses for that classification a permitted use entitles the applicant to a permit if development confirms with the land use bylaw discretionary use Deemed to be generally appropriate for the district, but are not necessarily compatible with surrounding uses. Number 41. What is the difference between a development permit and building permit? Developing permit. 
This is actually important. So the development permit and building permit, which is interesting because a lot of people when they're doing stuff on their homes forget to get the right permit and have to redo their home. So make sure if you are renovating your house, you get the right permits. Yes, you need permits. So a development permit is an excavation or stockpile of building addition replacement or repair of a building or change to use of or the intensity of the use of the land or the building over use land. The building permit is the permit for construction applies to specific projects and improvement of the property. So typically you need a building permit for an example if you are building your deck and say you extend your deck past a certain property line uh, or height, uh, you need permits for this. If you don't have the right permits and the city for some reason comes by and like bylaw officer basically comes by and says, sir, you've overextended your property. Uh, you will be forced to take that part down and you'd have to pay for the construction yourself because you you didn't get the right permits. So typically your contractor will get the right permits. If your contractor does not get the right permits, you know, it can be bad. 42, 42, 42. Describe the difference between legal use, non-conforming use, and illegal use under the land use bylaw. So it's like a tongue twister. The answer, legal use is permitted use of the property under the land use bylaw illegal illegal use is one that is not allowed under the current use bylaw non-conforming is that the use was legal at the time of the development but has become illegal due to a change in the land use bylaw in this case the non-conforming use may continue even if there is a change in ownership of the property Basically, non-conforming is grandfathered in. You was legal at one point in time. Now it's illegal, but it's too much of a pain to change everything because of the technicalities, so it's fine. But you wouldn't be able to redo it. You'd have to leave it there. Leave it all alone. Number 43. What is the purpose of a building code? Protect public health, safety, and general welfare as it relates to the construction and occupy of the building structures. Number 44. Why do municipalities collect taxes? Municipalities are authorized the responsibility to collect the property taxes. The municipality tax portion is managed by the municipality to fund the local operations and educational tax portion is transferred to the province to fund the Alberta School Foundation Fund. Number 45, explain. Sure. Explain the assessment process. Is the process of. I think it's supposed to be. It is. Let's change that. It is. That makes more sense. 
Okay, it is the process of assigning a dollar value to a property for the purpose of taxation. The municipality government, government act defines property as a parcel of land, an improvement, or a parcel of land, and an improvement to the land. Number 46, what is meant by ad valerium? This is actually, I think, one on the test. I think it's on the test. I don't know. I don't remember. Since the pandemic, I forgot a lot of things. Okay, what is meant by ad valerium? An ad valerium tax is a tax whose amount is based on the value of a transaction or of property. It is typically imposed at a time of transaction and is in the case of a sales tax or value add tax, added tax. Basically it's tax. It's tax. How are municipality governments calculated? What? No, that doesn't make sense. Let me read that again. I think I added words there. Number 47, how are municipal taxes calculated? That sounds better. The answer, property assessment, AKA land and buildings, times the mill rate equals property tax payable. So for an example, $400,000 times 0 0.01 will equal the property tax payable. Which I believe is shown in a percentage maybe, or a dollar amount, I can't remember. 48, what is meant by mill rate? The mill rate. The mill rate is an amount of tax payable per dollar of the assessed value of the property. The mill rate is based on mills. As each mill is one thousandth of the current unit, of the currency unit, one mill is equivalent to one tenth of a cent, or expressed as zero point zero zero one dollars. How number forty nine? How is the mill rate calculated? Mill rates equal amount of taxes to be raised divided by total value of assessed properties. For an example, $1 million taxes to be raised divided by $50 million total assessed value equals 0 0.02 or 20 mils. And that concludes Unit 2.